Glad to see you. Hey, we got, we got a lot. We got a lot to do today. So I'm just going to get right into it. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, grab it. If you don't, there's a black uh, copy in the seat back in front of you. We'll be on page 942. 942. Uh, also, if you don't have one of these yet, this is a little John scripture journal. So it's just the Gospel of John, which is the series we're in right now. And this is a gift from us to you. Take this, scribble in it, highlight it, circle things, underline, make notes. Uh, take this with you home and study on your own and then come back ready to hear what else God has to say. So uh, would you pray with me as we enter into our time of teaching? Father God, thank you for another opportunity to gather as your church to learn exactly what it is that you're doing and have done through your son Jesus Christ. So we thank you for this uh, opportunity to look uh, at a story that many of us might have heard before, give us fresh eyes to see it, and let it speak to us today. Uh, we thank you for those who are here who do not yet know you. Would you reveal yourself to them? Thank you for giving them courage to consider who you are. Would you be with them as well? And for all of us who don't know you as we might uh, that's each and every one of us, that we might know you more in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, before I begin, let me just make obviously clear, obviously clear, is that a real word? I don't know. That Jesus does seem to be different in this account than he was in last week's account. So last week, if you were with us, what did Jesus do? He was at a wedding. They ran out of wine. He turned the water into wine. Fun guy. Fun guy. <laughs> Jesus is a fun guy. You're like, that's the kind of guy I want to have around. This week, not so fun. And we'll see why. This week... Last week was fun guy Jesus, this week is judge Jesus, judge Jesus. Last week he was willing to be a guest at a wedding and just play his part to help the wedding go smoothly and for people to have a fun time. This week he's not willing to be a guest at the temple. Why is he not willing to be a guest? Because he's going to tell us, that's my father's house. And I can't stay quiet about what you're doing in my father's house. So, fun guy Jesus, judge Jesus, all Jesus. He's all these things and more. And I hope what we actually see today is, even though last week's Jesus is the Jesus that many of us want, it's this week's Jesus that we desperately need. If last week's Jesus was good, this one is very good, and all of it is a part of his mission and ministry in the world. So let's get into it, and uh, to tee up what we'll see today is we've said that John sort of arranges his gospel, the first half of it, in seven signs that Jesus is the Messiah, which is to say he is the Savior, the Anointed One, the One whom God has sent. He is, in fact, the Son of God, and he's going to give seven signs of why he can be trusted as such. Now, today's uh, passage is not actually one of the seven signs, 
but it is um, a promise of a sign to come. And it's a promise of the final sign that Jesus will give, which is a sign of the resurrection. So last week when he turns water into wine, the sign is that Jesus is God. He has power over his creation. So he can take water, turn it into wine. He has power over his creation. And today we'll see actually a promise or a precursor to the final sign or the seventh sign of John's gospel, which is resurrection. That Jesus, as God, has power over death itself. So, um, just be kind of tracking with us in the seven signs. So today's not one of the signs proper, but a promise, a precursor of the signs. So let's read it together. Uh, I'll actually start just uh, in in verse 11 of chapter 2, just to kind of see the transition after the wedding, and and, and follow with me until the end of chapter 2. So here we go. John chapter 2, starting verse 11, says this. Jesus did this, turned water into wine. The first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. So it seems at this point, his mother, Mary, was traveling with him and some of his half-brothers also traveling with him. And they stayed there only a few days. So we're not sure how long after the wedding this next account is, starting in verse 13. The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now actually, he would have gone south, but whenever you see up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was up on a hill, so you'd have to walk up to it, even though it was south, several days journey from where he was in Capernaum. So he goes up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. And he also found money changers sitting there. Now, um, the Passover was uh, the biggest of Jewish festivals and holidays as they remembered God's saving act in the Exodus. We preached on Exodus a couple years ago now. Really fun series. uh, Seeing how God saves his people and uh, it's called the Passover because of the final plague that, that Jesus or that God brought against um, the Egyptians was an angel of death that came over and killed the, un, uh, the firstborn of all the families who did not have the blood of a lamb painted on their doorpost. That marked out these are the people of God who have sacrificed a lamb and are therefore covered. From this angel of death. And so the angel of death passed over those families, spared those firstborns, but the firstborns of the Egyptians who were stubbornly enslaving God's people, they were judged. So that's the context of this festival. And so in John's gospel, Jesus will go three times to the Passover festival, which is why most scholars believe that Jesus' public ministry lasted about three years. So this is the first account, and and this is the only gospel of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's the only one that talks about this first visit to the Passover. What we've said about John is he's writing decades after the other gospels. He's in part filling in gaps, telling some of the stories that hadn't already been told. He's providing theological clarity for what actually was happening and, and why Jesus did the things that he did. And so 
John's gospel is unique, trying to help people understand exactly what he and the other disciples, disciples believed about Jesus and the things he did. So that's the context. And so it makes sense because at the Passover, people would come from all over the Roman world. Jews would come from all over, and they would, have, uh, they would as part of the festival, uh, buy an animal to be slaughtered to reenact the Passover and give a sacrifice to God for the forgiveness of sin and to worship Yahweh. So that's why people were in the temple selling these animals. It would be hard to bring animals over a long distance. So there's some practicality here. So what happens next? Verse 15. After making a whip out of cords... Okay, so he, he shows up and he decides to make a whip and go all Indiana Jones on these folks. He drove everyone out of the temple. So he drove people out with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling doves, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And this will be important. The Greek for marketplace is actually a house of business. So stop turning my father's house into a house of business. Sort of miss the play on words there. Verse 17. And his disciples... When they saw this, remembered that it was written, and now he quotes an Old Testament prophecy, zeal for uh, for your house will consume me. This is from Psalm 69. So Jesus replied to him, or sorry, so the Jews replied to Jesus. Now, you've maybe heard us say this, when it says the Jews, oftentimes it's not talking about all the Jewish people, it's talking about the elite religious Jewish temple leaders, okay? So this would have been the people with authority in the temple, and they're often shorthand. John calls them the Jews. So they would have been the priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, the important religious figures. So they come up to Jesus, and they say to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Here's what they're asking. Um, If you were to go, let's throw it up on the screen actually, Emily. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Malachi is the last prophet written before the coming of the Messiah. And then there's a long silence. And in the third chapter, uh, this is the prophetic word. It says, see, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant will uh, you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's bleach. He will be like a, refiner's, a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. The sons of Levi were the priests. 
sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in the days of old and years gone by. So here is a prophecy, and the, the Jewish leaders see Jesus flipping over tables, whipping people, telling them to get out of his father's house, and they immediately think of this prophecy, and they realize that Jesus is making a statement. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who the father sent. And so they ask him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Prove it, they say. Prove that you're the messenger. Otherwise, what are you doing in our temple courts acting like you own the place? They understand what Jesus was saying. And so they ask him for a sign. And this would have been common. This is a common way that dialogue happened between warring factions within the Jewish religious system. This wasn't the first person who had come and claimed to be a Messiah, a messenger, a prophet, and so they say, prove it. Show us a sign. And Jesus answered, and this is very important. You have to try to put yourself in these leaders' shoes, in the scene. The crowd is watching. So he said, everyone get out of here, and guess what? No one left. They want to see what happened next. That's what people do. They sense the fight was brewing, you know. So the crowd is around them. The Jewish leaders confront him, show us the sign. And this is what Jesus says. Now, this is a guy who just turned water into wine. He's got power over creation. He could bring down whatever he wanted to prove. And this is what he says. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. So he's standing near the temple, in the courtyard of the temple, and he says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Now what would the Jewish leaders, priests, have thought he was talking about? Of course, he's talking about the physical building of the temple. And I'll show you a picture here in a second. You can see what he would have been referring to. And so their response is normal. And Jesus knew they wouldn't know what he was really talking about, which John is about to sort of give us a behind-the-scenes look. None of the disciples knew what Jesus was talking about in the moment. Nobody knew except Jesus what he was saying. So the Jews said, verse 20, This temple, they point, this temple took 46 years to build. 46 years. And you will raise it up in three days? So they bring proof or evidence that his prophecy is obviously not true. Again, they don't have a category for Jesus. They don't have a category yet for that he would experience a resurrection. The disciples don't get what Jesus is saying. I mean, they're like, we're with you, Jesus, but you don't make it any sense. Jesus doesn't respond. This is key. I, didn't, I, didn't, I never saw this until this week's studying. Jesus is silent. Jesus doesn't explain to them that they're going to kill him and that on the third day he will rise from the dead. He doesn't explain it to them in the moment. He's just silent. He makes a point. 
uh, that temple's going to get torn down, and then I'm going to rebuild it in three days. They make fun of him and say, yeah, right, it took 46 years. Good luck. The crowd is watching what's Jesus going to say, and he's just silent. And he just takes it. He takes all, everyone being like, you don't have anything to say? He takes the shame of losing the argument. He doesn't provide a sign in the moment. He allows the shame in that moment to come upon himself. Now John, the gospel writer John, gives us some commentary or narration after the fact. Verse 21, he says, But he, that's Jesus, was actually speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, three years later, his disciples remembered that he had said this. They remembered this encounter with the Jewish officials where Jesus left in shame because he lost the argument. He didn't show a sign. They remembered it, and they go, he actually won that argument. So they remembered it after Jesus was actually raised from the dead. They remembered that he'd said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. So much to say in this passage, but just want you to see that Jesus' timeline is different than our timeline. He's got a different watch than we've got. He was doing something here that nobody knew he was doing, both predicting his death and resurrection, but also taking upon himself the shame of the world. Verse 23 says this. While he was in Jerusalem, so the scene ends, the people scatter, Jesus has lost, in a sense. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs he was doing. What signs? He could have done those signs right there in the moment to prove he was Malachi 3, 1 to 4. He waited. He didn't do it there. But then it seems like he stayed around and did more signs and others believed. (laughs) Interesting. So many believed. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Again, a little uh, insertion by John as narrator about why Jesus went about doing his ministry the way he did. And so I won't have a lot to say about these last few verses, but I will say this. Jesus, time and time again, would get people that would follow him, but he never entrusted himself to them because he knew their heart wasn't ready. He knew that their heart was ultimately selfish. He knew that he was in the hands of the Father, not of his fellow humans. So Jesus didn't entrust himself then to humanity, and I don't think he trusts him, or entrusts himself now to humanity, which is to say that no one has a monopoly on Jesus. He cannot be had. Not by Protestants, not by Catholics, 
not by the Eastern Orthodox. Anyone who says Jesus has entrusted himself to us is lying. We entrust ourselves to Jesus because Jesus knows the heart of humanity. So I just bring that up as a, as a bit of a side note that any church or denomination, their main task is to be faithful to expressing who Jesus was in himself, not taking ownership of him as if we own him, but to be faithful or unfaithful to pointing people and bringing people into the presence of Jesus. That's the job of any human institution, even the church, who God loves. It's his bride, but we don't own Jesus. Okay. So you see the dynamics of this encounter. Maybe you hadn't thought of some of those in the way that I just portrayed them. I want to tell you, this passage is doing a lot. Uh, And I'm going to try to quickly go through all the things that I think it's doing. I think this passage is about the holiness of God. I think this passage is about the corruptibility of religion. I think this passage is about the unavoidability of judgment. I think this passage is about Jesus as the Lamb of God and the temple of God. I think this passage is about the sign, the proof that is the proof that we should look to today, that he is those things, the Lamb and the temple. And I think this passage makes the gospel very, very clear. And I think this passage is about you and me 2,000 years later. So you ready? (laughs) We're going to have to move. We're going to have to move today. So this passage is about the holiness of God. What is the holiness of God? What is the holiness of God? We say God is holy. You've heard it. Holy, 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 the seraphim said about God in Isaiah's vision. Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah says, my lips are unclean to even speak about what I've seen of this holiness of God because I am an unholy, unclean man. What is this holiness? We talk about it. But do we know it? Do we sense what it actually is. And if you don't, if, if you struggle with it, that's, that's okay. Your whole life is a bit of a journey to discover the gap between God's holiness and your unholiness. So it's hard. It's hard to put your finger on. And then understanding why the holiness of God cannot commingle with the unholiness of corrupted, sinful creation. That's hard to understand. Like, why is that a thing? Now, when it comes to the holiness of God and it, com- it comes to the, comi- the, the inability of holiness and unholiness to commingle, some of these truths you just have to accept as revealed to us. And we can try to talk about them and try to put them in context. But at the end of the day, holiness is something that you must experience over a lifetime of pursuing a holy God. I was trying to think of how it's an unanswerable question and there's just some unanswerable questions in the world. Like if, if you were to ask me, like, why and how did the Kardashians become so famous? I couldn't tell you. I don't, I don't really know why everyone knows who they are. But just because I can't tell you why and how the Kardashians became the Kardashians doesn't mean they're not the Kardashians. 
doesn't change the fact. We have to live with it. <laughs> we can't get away from it. Just like we can't get away from the holiness of God. Even if we don't understand it. Even if we don't know why he set up a world in which his holiness and unholiness can't commingle. Like understanding exactly why and how God is holy and we are unholy at the end of the day doesn't change the fact that he is holy and we are not. And that's the world we live in. And in this moment in the temple, Jesus is reminding people of this fact. Have we forgotten about the holiness of God? Are we sitting here in his temple courts, acting as if he is ordinary? The opposite of holy is ordinary. A marketplace is one of the most ordinary things. Everybody knows what a marketplace is. It's ordinary. And yet we're treating God's house the holy, holy, holy God of, uh, uh, of our salvation as ordinary, and we're running a marketplace right on his front lawn. What are we doing, Jesus is saying. So let me show you a picture here, if, if that'll come up, of the temple, just so you can get an idea. So you see the tall building is the temple proper, and the only people that were allowed to... So the whole structure of the temple mount, this is called, is meant to point to and be a visual articulation of holiness. That there are just some things that are set apart as different. And so even the way you had to interact in the temple was meant to show you that God is holy and you are not. So you see the big area in the back that's kind of wide open? That's known as the courtyard of the Gentiles. Now that's probably where the marketplace was set up, where they were selling animals. If you don't know what animals do i got a story coming for you. i got a diagram here, too. <laughs> they eat, and then that food's got to go somewhere. So you just imagine, the, this is a pretty loud, filthy kind of a place, but the courtyard of the Gentiles was meant to be, the Gentiles uh, are the non-Jews. So they could only get so close to the holiness of God. So the whole picture here is to meant to remind people that only through the sacrifice the forgiveness of sin, can you come closer to God? And for a Gentile could come closer if they converted and became a proselyte Jew. So then the inner circle is the, Jew, uh, the courtyard. So that would be sort of uh, the inner sanctuary, the bottom left, uh, would be for Jewish men and women. And then if you go closer to the temple, only the priests could hang out there. That was a courtyard of the priests, and that's where the actual altar was, where they bring the burnt offerings of the animal. Uh, you can kind of see it if you've got good eyes. It's a little uh, box. And then obviously you've got the temple proper. Then even within the temple, if we were to zoom in, there's a holy place and then a holy of holies. And the holy of holies was where the Ark of the Covenant was in the days of old. Now at this point in, 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 in Israel's history, the Ark of the Covenant has been lost when they were taken into captivity in Babylon. So now they still have the Holy of Holies, and only once a year does the high priest enter the Holy of Holies. See, the whole structure is meant to remind people of the holiness of God, that he is not ordinary, that you cannot just come into his presence as if he is one of us. This awe, this reverence for the holiness of God, all of the temple, the whole structure was meant to portray that, and yet they've turned it into a common marketplace. And when Jesus sees it, righteous anger wells up in his heart. And he knows what he's there to do, to remind the people that God is not ordinary. 
it's easy to forget that. Sometimes people just don't know. Maybe you're here today and you've never heard about the holiness of God. And so it's not actually your fault if you've treated him as ordinary instead of holy. I remember uh, one day my son Grayson found this little gold medallion. And Grayson's sort of a money collector, a Matthew of sorts. And he's got a piggy bank pretty good, pretty good savings he's got. And so he's always on the hunt for coins. Coins still mean a lot to him. <laughs> um, and one day he found this gold medallion up on mom's dresser. And he grabbed it and, you know, I think I found him downstairs playing with it or maybe he was trying to put it in his piggy bank. I can't remember. I saw him and I said, what are you doing with mom's medallion? And I was like, I found this, this quarter. <laughs> I'm going to put it in my stash. And I'm like, Grayson, do you not know what that is? That's not an ordinary coin. He said, what do you mean? You know, kind of looks similar to the other coins. Like, Grayson, that is not an ordinary coin. Do you know what that is? Do not lose that. He said, Dad, what do you, I mean, you're getting kind of worked up here, Dad. What's going on? I said, Grayson, that's Mom's national championship gold medal. Allie will never tell you she's won a Division I national championship as a soccer player. And Grayson was playing with that thing like it was an ordinary quarter. <laughs> I'm like, Grayson, what are you doing? Grayson, do not lose that. Guess who gets blamed? <laughs> okay. God is not ordinary. And the people need to be reminded that the way they were acting, turning his temple into a, a marketplace, a, a house of business, rather than seeing it as his father's house, as God's house, they needed to be confronted. Guys, God is the creator the designer, the sustainer of all things. You have the breath, the next breath. Think, I want you to focus on the next breath that comes out of your mouth. That is a gift from God. He is so other than you that to treat him as ordinary, to take for granted everything that is and not see it as coming from him as a gift is to miss his holiness. So we have a crisis of holiness, don't we? We do not understand the holiness of God. His name comes on our lips flippantly. We take for granted the gift of the beauty, especially in a place like Seattle, rather than bending our knee in awe and reverence of the unordinariness of this God. And these people, just like us, were standing in this special place, this place that was meant to represent the presence of God in a unique way. And to be honest, they probably look right through the temple. They didn't really think it's there. This is just another opportunity to make money, even if it was to feed their family. They were missing it. I say this all the time about Dick's Hamburgers. People get so focused. I always say, we're the church right behind the Dick's Hamburgers. They're like, there's a church there? Yes! <laughs> Ham those hamburgers are amazing, okay? But they are ordinary. They're just like any other hamburger. 
The truck stops here, and then it goes down the street to the McDonald's. I know where both are. I like hamburgers. They're ordinary, and they're missing the extraordinary thing that's right behind it, a place of worship to the holy, holy, holy God. So we miss it. Everybody misses it. And we need to be reminded, and Jesus, in a very profound and prophetic way, reminds the people, this is my Father's house. So this passage is about the holiness of God. This passage is also about the corruptibility of religion. If you have been scarred by religion, by the church, if you are skeptical of religion, the church, if you are sick of the corrupt practices, the corrupt leaders, the corrupt pastors, the corrupt priests, if you're sick of that, Jesus is your guy. Jesus is your guy. Jesus says this, stop! This is an imperative. You can't get more oomph when he says stop. Stop turning my father's house into a house of business. Stop. Jesus would say the same thing. to the institutions, the men and women who are corrupting the worship of the one and only true God. There is only one way to get right the worship of the one true and holy God. And there are billions of ways to get it wrong. Billions. Only Jesus worshiped God the Father, with perfection. And then each and every human being that's ever walked this earth has corrupted, to some degree or another, his worship. This is why Jesus had to die. To be the only acceptable, pure, and righteous sacrifice for all other corrupted worshipers. That's also why anyone and everyone who turns to him to receive forgiveness through his sacrifice can be reconciled to the God that they have worshipped corruptly up until that point. And will probably, indefinitely, corrupt their worship after that point. I want to hear what you're saying. No matter to what degree a human being corrupts the worship of the one true God, they are redeemable through the sacrifice of Jesus. You say like, well, those people really got it wrong. Jesus. Those people got it pretty good and close. Jesus. We all need Jesus because we all corrupt true religion true worship and Jesus is for all of us this passage is about the unavoidability of judgment we read Malachi 3 1 to 4 the temple must be cleaned out we can't just keep going the way we're going it's unavoidable Judgment must come. 
Jackie Hill Perry uh, wrote this. Our society tends to accuse God of injustice and unfair wrath. They say his gavel falls too hard for our liking. Then she goes on to say, we are more shocked by his judgment than by his kindness. Why is that? Because judgment's scary. Because we can't understand his kindness if we don't understand his holiness. The fact that we have the breaths we've had since I told you to be aware of that breath is the kindness of God. What we deserve is to be removed from his good earth because we are corrupting it. Yet in his kindness, he waits patiently. But his judgment is unavoidable. He would not be good if he allowed for sin and defecation to remain forever in his holy house, which is all the world. I thought about this this week. God judges greed. I'm thankful that he judges greed. He judges the greed in my heart, and that was put on the cross onto Jesus, my Savior. He also judges the greed of those who don't put their trust. That greed is judged. This passage makes it clear. You could say it like this. When we sell for personal gain, when we sell what does not belong to us, and in this story, what does not belong to us is the removal of sin. When we sell what does not belong to us, we will lose everything. But God gives grace. When we receive what does not belong to us, which, in the sense of Jesus, is his righteousness. When we receive what does not belong to us, we gain everything, personally. Let me say it again. When we sell what does not belong to us, we will lose everything. When we receive what does not belong to us, we will gain everything. This is what the message of Jesus teaches us. God has no business partners in the business of the removal of sin. I am not God's business partner in the removal of sin, even though I am a clergyman. I am simply a receiver of God's work, God's business. And I'm a happy customer, so I'm telling people about it. Take what he's offering. Well, I don't know, there's lots of strings attached. No, there's not. Receive what he's offering, and you will get what you could not get any other way. That's the story of the gospel. And depending on if you're trying to sell something that does not belong to you or you're receiving something that does not belong to you, is how judgment will affect you. 
So Jesus, and thus God's righteous anger, is on full display here in this passage. Jesus, and thus God, are not safe. This is not kumbaya Jesus. Jesus, and thus God, are patient, but they are not tame or docile. Jesus, and thus God's judgment, is not his temper. He's not out of control. He's not flippant, but he's calculated. He's loving. He's purposeful in how he executes his judgment in the world. And this is a great illustration. Only in in John's gospel do we have this account. I think personally, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about a very similar incident at the end of Jesus' ministry. John doesn't mention it, because again, John is sort of filling in the gaps. But I think there's two incidents during the Passover where Jesus clears out the temple. Now, some, many disagree, but there's sort of two ways to look at it. I think they're two separate incidents. And in this incident, incident why John brings it up is Jesus was always righteous about this, or had righteous anger about this. And in this incident, we have the whip. This is why I, I love that he fashions, did you re- catch that? He takes the time to fashion a whip. <laughs> I don't know how long, I don't know, maybe some of you had made some whips. Martin, I, I literally was thinking of you, Martin. You just raised your hand. I was like, Martin probably knows. Ask Martin. He probably has made a whip. Martin knows about Yeah, okay. Martin's like an Indiana Jones kind of guy. Um, that's so funny. I thought of you. I was like, there's maybe one of you. And Martin raised his hand. Okay, so Martin knows. So it takes a little bit of time. I don't know how much time Jesus took. An hour or two, Martin says. He sees it, and he takes the time. He knows what he's doing. He, he knows what prophecy he's fulfilling. He knows he's going to go make a statement. And it's his judgment. So it's not out of control. It's not his temper flaring. I don't want you to think about this as Jesus' temper. He's totally in control. He has time to make a whip, and then he executes God's judgment. And his judgment is part of his love. It's part of his love. Now, I told you, if you don't know about this illustration, ask somebody. Eventually, we'll replace it with something more beautiful, but um, ask somebody about this story. We've got a dog. We've got a dog named Moose. Moose, uh, at the beginning of the year. I've never owned a dog in all 40 years of my life. I just sort of thought what it might be like. Turns out I was right. And (laughs) there's a lot of standing around in the yard, hopefully in the yard and not in my house, um, waiting for him to take care of his business. The yard is, you could say, a house of business for moose. Would it be loving towards my children, who also like to play in the yard, towards my wife or myself or visitors to my house, if from the time we got moose to whenever moose dies, we never enacted judgment on the business he conducts in our yard? Just let it go, all natural. Is that love? I I don't think many would say it's loving. I don't think many would say the business that Moose is doing is essential to (laughs) the flourishing of life at the Avanger house. But it is a part of this world, (laughs) Moose's business. And so in love, I clear it out. Allie clears it out. And occasionally, and we're trying to teach Grayson to clear it out. And that's part of what's necessary. 
So the unavoidability of judgment is actually something I love about God. That he hasn't just said, well guys, this is just the way it's going to be forever and anybody can do whatever kind of business they can do and you just have to live with it. It's just the way it is. To me, that's not a God worth worshiping. That's not a God worth following. I don't like that plan. I do like the plan that he judges and that his righteous anger is calculated. His timing is perfect. He knows what he's doing. He's not flying off the rails, losing his temper. He's very much in control, and his patience guides his judgment. And he's waiting so that all might have a chance to turn to him in faith, repent, and fall upon the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But it is unavoidable. And I think that's why John brings this to light, saying Jesus was always about judgment, even from the beginning. His first judgment was predicting that he must become the sacrifice. And that's why he was willing to lose the argument. Because he was actually predicting that he would become shame in our place. Which brings me to my next point. This passage is all about Jesus as the Lamb of God and Jesus as the temple of God. Psalm 69.9 is quoted here by John. And it's quoted here by John. I I don't have time to read it. But in that passage, the psalmist David is talking about all the insults that have been hurled on him. He's saying, even drunkards in the street are making up songs to bring shame to my name. And, and And John, by quoting that, is saying, when I saw Jesus doing that, that day, that's what he was doing. He was taking on the shame, the insult, the songs of derision on himself for our sake. John is theologizing that moment after talking to Jesus post-resurrection, and Jesus said, that's what I was doing. And John brings it to the forefront for us by quoting Psalm 69. It wasn't clear then in the moment what Jesus was saying, but it's clear to John now as he looks back on it. After talking to Jesus, Jesus is like, this is what I was doing. I let them win. I let them heap shame upon me because I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist was right. That's who I am. Jesus' intent for his people is a pure temple so that they can have right relationship with God. Jesus is saying, I am that temple. And you're going to kill that temple. You're the ones that are going to knock it down. And God's going to bring it back up after three days. Jesus' actions brought him in the moment, as I said, the shame, the insults, the rebuke of his own people. He became a joke. He couldn't come up with a sign. Does that remind you of any other time when they were singing, laughing, rebuking, save yourself, show us the sign if you're the son of God, if you're the king of the Jews? Yeah, as he hung on the cross. Show us the sign if you are who you say you were. And like a sheep before his shearers, he was silent for our sake. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
the pure, holy, blameless, righteous temple was in the flesh. John already said that in his prologue, you remember? The word of God came and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. Guess what the tabernacle became? The temple, templed among us. The pure, the holy, the blameless, the righteous God was in the flesh standing before us and he chose to bear our sin and our shame as the final and fulfilling sacrifice of the Passover lamb. That's all happening in this passage. I could preach a whole sermon series on this passage. It just came alive to me this week. Jesus is the lamb of God, the Passover lamb, who takes away the sin of any and all, no matter how corrupted your worship has been to this point, who stand underneath the cross and receive his blood as a mark of your righteousness. That's what this passage is all about. Then Jesus says, and I'll raise up, and this temple be raised up on the third day. So this passage is also about the sign, the proof that it is finished, that he is that lamb, that he is that temple. Verse 18 to 22, let's read it again. Verse 18 to 22, let's read it again. Here we go. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple. Now we know he's talking about himself. And I will raise it up on, in three days. Therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and he'll raise it up in three days. Jesus in his head saying, yep. The resurrection is the proof and it's coming, Jesus said, that his authority to forgive sins, to purify the temple, that this is his father's house, is actually a true statement. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is willing to wait for three years to prove that he was right. <laughs> Who does that? When you know you're right in your marriage with your best friend, do you wait three years just to prove you're right? No, you don't. Don't lie. Jesus saved you for that. Jesus is perfect. He takes it on. Jesus, in this scene, is the loser. And the narrative makes that clear. By Jesus' silence, he accepts the loss. And by the crowd's silence. You'll see this sort of thing play out again in John, but always Jesus seems to win. But he starts his ministry by losing. That's the gospel. See it? Salvation only comes through losing. That's the paradox of the gospel. The one who will win and always wins accepts defeat. Our defeat he accepts on himself. And he proves that it works by the resurrection. I think John's sort of highlighting the irony of it. Again, remember John's writing decades after. He's saying, one of the things you guys don't know about is how hilarious Jesus is. <laughs> and how profound he is. His humility runs so deep. He knows he speaks truth. These so-called wise, knowledgeable Jewish leaders 
had no idea. Still today, the strongest proof of Jesus' authenticity, his honesty in this moment and every other moment, the best proof for his authority, the best proof that his sacrifice did work, the best proof that he is still alive and reigns and rules at the right hand of God in the heavenlies is the fact that his temple is still alive. You study this in 1 Corinthians. Jesus said, I must go so that I can send you the helper and the spirit, John calls them the paraclete, the comforter, the counselor, will come and live inside of you and you will become temples of the living God. And the fact that you can't, no matter how hard you judge Christianity, wipe Christianity and Christians off the face of this earth, is testimony that the temple is alive. It's one of the best apologetics, the best proofs that something's going on here that we can't explain, that Christianity continues 2,000 years later, when at the heart of it is a teaching of a man who never had political power, never had money, had a three-year ministry, never was a religious leader, never had the power, and yet his temple, his presence, remains all over the world 2,000 years later. It seems like something's alive, and he said it would be alive, even if they tried to kill it. So this passage is about the sign, the proof, And you can still go back to it today. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then everything else he said was true. He does have the authority to cleanse the temple, to kick out the money changers, to flip over their tables. It is his house. The resurrection proves it. So this passage is also about the gospel, made so clear that when the holy God showed up in the flesh, when he encountered, when he found, John says, I love how he says that, Jesus found the temple He found it wanting. He found it wicked. He found it unclean. He found it twisted. He found those seeking personal gain from the things of God. He found hypocrisy. He found the stench of sin. That's what he found. When he found those, when he encountered those, when his holy sensibilities were perturbed beyond comprehension, his action find love he presented himself as the solution though he was the only honorable man in the room in the courtyard at that time he accepted the shame and dishonor of defeat because it was the only path that led to reconciliation for you and I it was the only way that righteousness could come to unrighteous but repentant sinners. He gave himself for our shame so that we might be freed when the resurrection comes to us. This passage is all about the gospel. Finally, this passage is all about you and me. Will you let God clear out your bad furniture, the furniture that you've set up for your corrupt worship practices? 
Will you invite Jesus to clean out your unholiness? Or when he comes in, will you argue with him? Will you deny that it's really that big of a deal? Will you say, well, that's just the way it is? Will you just say, well, it's not practical? Or will you say, okay, judge me, God. Clean me, God. Clarify my worship, God. We should all cherish God showing up even if God showing up means judgment to our world, to our life, even if it embarrasses us. Second, we should be passionate about the house of God. The community of saints gathered is the house of God. It's not, it's not a building, but where the people of God gather, that is the house of God. We should be passionate because Jesus was passionate about it. He says that's not some ordinary community. That's the holy community of the saints. We should be passionate about it. And so I would say, if we see people profiteering off of the name of Jesus, we should rebuke them. We should call them out, and then we should leave it there. Martin, sorry, no whips, my man. We don't get to bring the whip. God will bring the whip, but we can call it out. We can refuse to participate in it, and sometimes we may not even know if we're participating in it, and so we need to zoom out and ask a really hard question. Are the people we're following, the pastors we're following, the books we're reading, are these just people profiting off of the name of Jesus? And if so, we should stop supporting them. And if we have the, the platform, we could call them out. But we can't bring a whip. We leave the whip to Jesus. We model a better way, a purer way, yet still remembering that even our best effort still has corruptibility in it. I just think it's an important message for the church in America. I don't think it's necessarily a problem for us, but I think I want to tell you about it because I think it's actually a point where we can connect with an unbelieving world. There's a show on HBO called The Righteous Gemstones. Has anybody seen that? Righteous, okay. It's basically just making fun of the, the mega, mega church, the health and wealth. Um, it's pretty funny. Even as a pastor, it's sort of hard, it's like a hard funny, like, uh, but yeah. And so like, <laughs> I think we should, as the people of God, the true people of God, we should laugh with the world at versions of Christianity that look like that. I think it's actually a connecting point, a collaborative point, a bonding point with the world. They intuitively see that and say, gross, we should say gross too even if those people are claiming to be preaching Jesus. I think it's a way to connect. It's the Sedaris principle, lead with lament. You could say, have you seen the righteous gemstone? You could be like, yeah, and it's truer than you think. Like, I watch that show and I'm like, I bet somebody, whoever wrote that grew up in the church. But then you bring them to this and you say, and Jesus is on our side. (laughs) 
Jesus came to clear that junk out. Jesus is more upset by that than me or you could ever be. And Jesus is presenting himself as the new temple, as true religion. True religion is centering your life around the person of Jesus. He is the temple. And we work to clear out the furniture of righteousness so that we can be as near to him as possible now. And he's taking care of the forevermore through the cross as the Lamb of God. So this passage is about a lot of things. It's about the holiness of God. It's about Jesus as the Lamb of God. It's about the corruptibility of religion, the unavoidability of judgment. And it's about you and me. And Jesus is inviting us to partner with his cleansing, reorienting, true worship. A movement that he started 2,000 years ago that we get to partner with when we let him come into our lives and direct us on how to worship the holy God. Let's pray.